Hey, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming. I'm sitting here with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are two of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. Elizabeth, we are coming up on tax day and, uh, and it makes me think about taxes and particularly the tax issues that often come, for, come up for us because we do a lot of work with trusts, sometimes irrevocable trusts that are themselves taxpayers. And, uh, and there's kind of a knee-jerk, visceral reaction from accountants and investment advisors and often lawyers that, uh, that an irrevocable trust, a trust that has its own tax ID number and pays taxes at its own rate, is almost always a bad thing because trusts pay taxes at a higher rate. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit as long as we're in the tax spirit. So first of all, maybe a, a little bit of a primer. Um, everybody pays taxes, including trusts, and there are gradations of tax based on your income. And for an individual, the very highest tax rate, plus the extra Medicare surcharge tax, kicks in at $400,000 or some number uh, in that range. For a married couple, it's a pretty big number. But for a trust, the highest tax rate shows up below $20,000 of income. So that's when people say that trusts pay a higher tax rate, well, not necessarily, but they do get to the highest tax rate at a very early level, all right. So any significant amount of income can be taxed at a higher rate. And Robert, I think we want to make sure everybody who's listening to us today thinks about two, two important notes. One, today we are not talking about revocable trust. We are not talking about the trust that my husband Doug and I created to hold assets of ours during our lifetime. We're not talking about revocable trust today. You know, that's a, a really important point. Thank you, Elizabeth, for calling me out on it. Uh, it's a pretty gentle call out, but, uh, but it's something that people often get confused about. And we're not necessarily only talking about every irrevocable trust because an irrevocable trust might still, like your and Doug's trust, be taxed at the settlor's rate. It just being irrevocable doesn't automatically kick in the tax, higher tax rate. Correct. So when we ta we're talking today, Robert, I just want to make sure our listeners know that we're not talking about revocable trusts. And for the most part, we're talking about a certain subset of irrevocable trusts. The other note I want to make sure that our listeners consider is that we're talking about Arizona law and we're talking about taxes as it may rate may relate to taxes in Arizona. So the rules around taxes are going to change based on a whole number of different factors and trusts and this can get complicated quickly. So with those two notes in mind, I think it's important for folks to also remember if you have a CPA and you have a trust or you're a beneficiary of a trust, that's great. But you should also seek out the advice of an attorney if you're talking about tax issues and trusts. This is something, Robert, we see frequent confusion by, um, caused by sometimes CPAs or financial advisors with our clients. This is a very important area that people need to really consider sitting down and having a group conversation about. So with, with that out of the way, one thing many people who have an irrevocable trust or beneficiaries of an irrevocable trust don't consider is the fact that the trust may not have to pay taxes on the income generated by trust assets if in fact you push that income out to the beneficiary of the trust. So that's a very simple 
way to consider it. If you actually use the trust itself as kind of a conduit and have the income go through the trust to the beneficiary and have the beneficiary actually receive a form called a Form K-1, that will that can say what income tax the beneficiary may, what income has been provided to the beneficiary, which the beneficiary may have to account for on his or her own personal return. That That's one way, Robert, I think, when we think about trusts and taxes. Many people never think about passing out the tax consequence, actually, to the beneficiary. Right. And, and it's important to understand that you don't have to push out all of the income. So if you have a, if you're the beneficiary of a very large trust that has $100,000 of ordinary income, we're going to talk about capital gains in a minute, but it has $100,000 of ordinary income and all you get out of the trust this year is $50,000. Um, for those who are not watching the video of this, oh wait, there is no video, but you don't get to see the air quotes about around only. You only get 50,000 of the trust's $100,000. Well, you pay the tax on the $50,000 that you got. The trust pays the tax on the $50,000 that wasn't distributed. But if $120,000 was distributed, you pay the tax on all $100,000 of income, not on what you got from the trust, just up to the amount of the income. And nobody pays any additional income tax on the ordinary income. So as you say, Elizabeth, it's something that's within the control of the trustee to reduce the income tax liability of the trust just by making distributions. And oh, by the way, that's not just distributions to the beneficiary. That can include distributions for the benefit of the beneficiary. Because we deal a lot with special needs trusts at Fleming and Curdy, uh, the, the special needs trust scenario is very common where what the, what the trustee does is make a major purchase for the benefit of the beneficiary. Maybe buys a van titled in the beneficiary's name. Um, that can push out all of the income in, in all but the very largest of trusts in the year in which that happens. So it's something that the beneficiary, I'm sorry, the trustee can control at least to some extent. And so, Robert, I, I think that I just um, always slow down and really start to look at the facts of a case, not just the tax work paper, for instance, the summary of disbursements that might have been made. You mentioned capital gains. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, let's talk about that because they're a little bit of a different uh, kettle of fish, ball of wax, whatever the right metaphor is. Capital gains really only get taxed at one of two rates, 15% or 20%. And this is a moment to reiterate what you said earlier, Elizabeth, that we're talking about Arizona. There's not a separate uh, calculation method. Arizona has a separate tax, but it's based on the federal calculation. So the, the, federal, uh, the federal rules effectively apply in Arizona as well. So we're just talking for the moment about the federal tax effect. Capital gains get taxed at either 15% or 20%. If they come to a trust and the trust doesn't make the distribution, then, uh, then they get to the 20% level pretty fast. But it's only a 5% difference. So it's not often, it is often not a crippling tax difference if the, if the tax is captured inside the trust. Well, Robert, I'm scratching my head now because I have a slight headache. What if I decide that I'm going to just create an irrevocable trust or on my death, my estate will create an irrevocable trust for the benefit of a beneficiary? And in theory, you know, who gives two hoots about taxes? 
the benefit that the beneficiary is going to derive by having funds managed in a trust is going to be my sole goal. I want to make sure that this money can last a long time for the beneficiary. And you know what? Maybe the trust is just going to have to pay taxes. Is that okay? Elizabeth, you are a wise planner because that's really the point of today's message. If you have a visceral, oh my gosh, we can never do this because the tax rates will be much higher reaction, slow down. Talk, tell your, your CPA or your financial advisor to slow down. There are circumstances where the control over the money is more important than the taxes, especially since the trustee will often have quite a bit of discretion to manage the tax effect. So um, push back against that visceral reaction and actually explore the, the circumstances of your case. It may be that we end up agreeing with, with the accountant and the financial advisor, but we may say it's a relatively small price to pay for the kind of control that we need, especially in those special needs trust situations. That's the bottom line. It's not always a hard and fast, oh, you can never do this rule. And that's why you're such a wise planner, Elizabeth. I'm not wise about everything, Robert, but I enjoyed our conversation today. (laughs) And our conversation is between Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman and me, Robert Fleming, two of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. We do this elder law issues every week, and we hope you will join us again next week. Thanks.